<laughs> well, hello everyone. Welcome to Freedom International live stream. Today we have Dr. Patrick Moore as our distinguished guest, and we are really honored to have him. With me are Roy from Awakening Podcast, Hartmut from Go Your Own Path, Chris Ryan from Mind Wars, and Steve from Awakened Mind. And so thank you everyone for always following us and please keep sharing every podcast, every episode that we have. And Dr. Patrick Moore, thank you for being with us. It's a great pleasure, Grace, to be with you and your colleagues on this podcast. Thank you. Dr. Patrick Moore is really a because he, he has been a leader in the international environmental field for over 30 years. He is uh, well known as the founding member of Greenpeace and served for nine years, president of Greenpeace Canada. And eventually at some point he moved on to do much better um, environmental engagement. And he can, he'll tell us about that and why the move. And for me, reading a little bit about his childhood, I say that he, you are born to do what you're doing now especially that you grew up in the, your first formative years before you went into your um, to the boarding school, that you were really immersed in that uh, environment in a floating village. And that reminded me of floating villages in Asia. And I really love floating villages. And in recent years, Dr. Moore has been focused on the promotion of sustainability and consensus building among competing concerns. And, and of course, um, he has much, much more. So Dr. Moore, please go ahead and tell us a little bit more of your compressed version of what you're doing, because you're highly credible uh, with us being our guests and to talk about what we need to talk about, especially truth about environment. Well, Grace, when I started with Greenpeace, it was the height of the Cold War, the Vietnam War, and the all-out nuclear war threat that all of us were so afraid of as young people at that time. And I decided to do something. So while I was doing my PhD in ecology, which was actually quite a new word then in the late 60s, early 70s, and I decided to join this small group the Don't Make a Wave Committee in a church basement in Vancouver, the Unitarian Church, which recognizes all religions. And we made a plan to sail a boat across the North Pacific Ocean to stop U.S. hydrogen bomb testing in Alaska as a symbol against the threat of nuclear war. And that provided a focal point for the media to talk about this issue more instead of just people marching in the street or writing letters to the editor we were actually going to the scene of the crime in a small fishing boat and we had the cia watching us every day and then walter cronkite reporting on us when we were arrested by the u.s coast guard so we made big news out of something that was going on fairly quietly before that and amazing at that time, President Nixon was in power. He canceled the nuclear tests after the one we were protesting was done. 
So we won right away. The first time we had nothing more to do, except there was much more to do because France was still detonating atomic and hydrogen bombs in the air in the South Pacific, in Polynesia. And so we chose that as our next objective to stop this. This took two years only. We sent a boat again two years in a row to provide a focal point for the media and some action. One year, the French rammed our boat. The next year, they attacked the captain of the boat, David McTaggart, with bludgeons and hit him over the head and damaged one of his eyes. So this made big international news. And next year, France decided to stop testing nuclear weapons in the air and went underground, where at least then the radiation doesn't go around the world. So we became quite famous with this. The only problem was people said we must be communists because we were only attacking France and the US. Well, we knew that we couldn't go after the Russian nuclear testing or we'd be in jail and probably die of hunger or in a concentration camp or something. So we we had a little bit of a problem there and it, that was corrected though when we decided to save the whales. Some people thought, what, what? Save the whales? What's important about that? It's more important to stop nuclear testing. But we knew that we should save some living things. And 30,000 whales were being killed every year to, to, to this, in this time, in the mid-1970s. And we went out for four years in a row into the North Pacific and put ourselves in front of the harpoons of the whaling fleets and got on TV all around the world for this, and we stopped it. So this is the beginning of Greenpeace. We went on to do many other things then. I led the campaign in the early 80s to stop the capture of, of orca whales, also known as killer whales, which were being taken to aquariums where they were dying soon after they arrived by months. Uh, they would only live a short time. And by the time we intervened, one third of all the live whales from the west coast of British Columbia had been taken from the sea. And so we stopped that too. And we then went to stop nuclear, uh, sorry, toxic waste being dumped into the rivers and oceans. We did a lot of good things. But as time went on, Greenpeace changed. We began with Greenpeace. The peace was for people to stop nuclear war, to save civilization. Of course, the green was for nature. The peace kind of got lost somewhere along the way, and now it was just the green. And Greenpeace and other environmental groups were now describing the humans as the enemies of the earth, the enemies of nature, as if humans were the only bad species of all 1.7 million species which live today. And this, to me, was too much like original sin or like extreme, uh, extreme religion, fire and brimstone, you will all go to hell type of thinking. And I, I rejected that. So that was the philosophical reason I had to leave Greenpeace. But at a very uh, specific level, my fellow directors, none of whom had any science education like I did, decided that Greenpeace should take a campaign 
to ban chlorine worldwide. And yes, chlorine can be toxic, but it's also put in the drinking water to prevent disease, the biggest advance in the history of public health. In addition, 85% of our medicines are made with chlorine chemistry, and 15% of our medicines actually have chlorine in them. So chlorine should not be banned worldwide. Maybe it should be regulated for certain uses, etc. But this idea of a total ban on the most important element for public health and medicine, to me seemed completely ridiculous. So I couldn't stay in an organization that was adopting this position. And therefore I left. I left on friendly terms. Some people think I was kicked out or that I left angry uh, with them, but no, it was totally, totally on good terms. I just went my way and they went theirs. And I believe my way is a sensible way from a science point of view and that they are, are working with misinformation too often and sensationalism and particular with fear. And that is why I have written my new book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, because all of the scare stories are meant to frighten people. And all of the scare stories are based on things that are either invisible or so remote that nobody can prove that they are right by looking at them themselves. In other words, they have to rely on the activists to tell them what's happening. And the same is true of the climate issue, the polar bears are not going extinct, the coral reefs are not dying, but they're not in, they're, they're so far away from most people they can't check it for themselves. So that is why I've written this book and I hope more people will read it. It's getting extremely positive reviews, over 1,000 reviews on Amazon with 95% four and five star ratings in the reviews because it is 50 years of learning on my by myself constantly studying these subjects and uh sorry if my introduction is a little lengthy but i could i could go on for another hour <laughs> but uh, well, thank, I will stop now. Thank, thank you so much um especially for the the work that you and the greenpeace did for the whales um right in my city my family swims with sh uh, shark whales the whale yes. sharks it's it's in my area so they're so far they're friendly they haven't hurt any of my family members and and also i thank you for um you know being just being truthful for a lot of things that you are doing right now and you are highly controversial because you speak about the plastic you speak about chlorine and they're that there and then you talking about the gmo and so how do you and, and at, at one point you they were really um they took you out of that um record or history that you are the co-founder right after many years when you left but what's in it really for you because some so the, you, there are also articles that that you work for these corporations so maybe let's just get it out in the open what's in it for you that you have to talk about um the war on plastic that you have to talk about not being fearful about the gmo well what's in it for me is knowing that i'm helping to spread the truth about these issues uh, and not the propaganda which is coming out uh what's in it for the people who are spreading the fear 
is a tremendous billions of dollars. For me, I have actually never had a boss all my life. I have never worked for any corporation as an employee. I have worked for industry associations primarily where I believed I could help them with the false information that was being spread about their industries. And this, this is true of fossil fuels, it's true of nuclear energy, it's true of GMOs. Let's just, you mentioned GMOs there at the beginning. The, the campaign against GMOs, where they won't even consider allowing golden rice, which is a GMO, but could save 2 million children from dying from vitamin A deficiency every year if they would let them grow it. They're even against that because the last thing they want is a humanitarian success for a GMO. But why are they opposed to GMOs? They say that they're dangerous in some way. That means they must have something in them that is harmful. I can't see any other reason to oppose them unless it's purely on philosophical or theoretical grounds of some kind. But in terms of human health and toxicity, etc., they must think there is something bad in the GMO. What is it, I ask? It has no name. It is invisible. It doesn't even have a chemical formula. Everything has a name and a chemical formula, everything. There is nothing that is material that does not. So perhaps this danger in GMOs is ethereal, in other words, a spirit of some kind, rather than an actual poison or something that would disrupt your digestive system or give you cancer or whatever. No, there is nothing at least with carbon dioxide and radiation as examples of things that are invisible but are actually real. CO2 is a real thing. Radiation is a real thing. And, and they spread lies about both these things. But when you have GMOs, there isn't even a real thing to say there's something bad about them. And this is it's ridiculous. And why people don't understand that? Why don't they ask, what is it in the GMOs that will harm me? Instead of making it as if it's some kind of religious issue. It's not a religious issue. It's a dietary issue. It has to do with what you eat. And there is nothing in GMOs that is harmful for you to eat. It's absolutely nothing. So that's why I take the positions I do and why I have worked mostly with industry associations, not with individual companies. Uh, I have worked for some, some individual companies at various times, but almost never, mostly with, with groups of companies which are in associations, like the forestry associations. I mean, as, as you know, many environmental groups are basically against forestry. And then you ask them, what is your house made from? Well, it's made from wood. How did they get the wood? I think they cut a tree. It's so simple. But they are against forestry. They are also against using wood to make electricity and heat for homes. They're against what's called biomass energy. 
Now, what is wrong with using wood for energy? This was the beginning of human civilization, the harnessing of fire for heating and cooking, mainly. Today, we use it to make electricity, too. In Europe, for example, gets a tremendous amount of its electricity, more than, you know, close to 5% of its electricity from biomass and waste being used to produce heat and power. So, but they are against all of this. And it turns out in the end, they are against hydroelectric power with using water. I mean, what, we can't even use water to make electricity. They are against nuclear energy. They are against fossil fuel energy. And they only support wind and solar, which is less than 2% of the world's energy and could never be much more than it is today because as soon as you get up to a certain percentage of energy, which is only there one third of the time, you, you have a dysfunctional system of energy and it costs a lot of money. So th their position on energy is completely ridiculous to say only wind and solar should be acceptable because they really are, you, you ask them, they're against every other kind of electricity. And this, this can never be done with wind and solar because the, the solar is maybe 20% uh, available, 25 maximum, and wind in some places is 40, but mostly 30. And it doesn't necessarily blow or sunshine when you actually want it. Like when we talk about charging all these cars batteries, if you turn all the cars electric, well, most people would be wanting to charge their battery at night because they're driving in the day. There's no sunshine at night to charge the batteries. They'll have to charge other batteries to charge your, your batteries. It's, it, it is a ridiculous proposition, the, the system that they are proposing. And in Germany, for example, it has resulted in a doubling of electricity prices. And at the same time, they are increasing their use of coal because they are phasing out their nuclear energy, which is like 15% of their base reliable energy in Germany. Whereas France, which has 70% nuclear energy, which is reliable all the time, produces not more than, not much more than half as much carbon dioxide per capita as Germany does. So it's a much better system, the, the French system. Yet the environmental movement is against the French system and in favor of the German system, which doubled electricity prices and did not reduce carbon emissions at all over the long run. So it, it, there's so much irresponsible uh, name calling and saying actual untruths about these various technologies. Nuclear energy is so far the safest form of energy we have. Only one nuclear accident caused death to people, whereas gas and, 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 uh, and, and, and oil have caused many accidents that caused death to people. That, mean, that doesn't mean we stop, should stop using it because it makes civilization possible. But uh, well, so what's in it for me yeah. is to feel good that I am telling the truth about these issues. 
that's mainly what's in it for me. I'm not a wealthy person. I've, I have uh, been uh, very, I'd say, modest in my expenditures in my life. I don't, I don't have an expensive life. Uh, and, and I think I'm telling the truth. That's, that's the whole, the whole purpose of it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts because this topic can be so confusing to ordinary people. And I, I, I may have many more questions, but I'll pass it on to Roy right now. Hi, Patrick. Hi, um, Roy. You mentioned about the nuclear, I mean, the Chernobyl, you know, I think everybody's aware of it. But what about uh, Japan with the tsunami? Like, the, hasn't that destroyed the ecosystem and the water with all that leaking into the the ocean no it did not uh it, it was wise of them for safety purposes to close the fishing for a time uh they are fishing there again now though of course because there wasn't really as big a problem as was thought uh, most of the radiation that went in the sea sinks to the bottom and becomes part of the sediments uh no one was killed by fukushima no person uh, no one was even really harmed. The biggest problem with Fukushima was the evacuation of thousands of people, 2,000 of whom died because of the evacuation. Nobody died because of the radiation. So they should not have done that. They should have, have said not eat to eat the food in that region for a period of time. But Fukushima was a really stupid accident on the part of the Japanese. The Japanese tend to be fairly insular. They don't listen to what's going on in the rest of the world too much. And the fact is, they built those reactors in a really dumb location, in a place that has had tsunamis in the past. They built it eight feet above sea level, totally open to the ocean. Then they put the backup diesel generators to make sure that the cooling water could be kept going in case of an accident or cut off the power from outside. And they put those, those generators in front of the reactors even closer to the sea. And they weren't even nailed down. They weren't even attached. They were just on skids. And same with the fuel tanks. So when the tsunami came, it just washed those generators away. And now there was no power because the, 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 the grid power from outside was cut off too. So there was no power to run the backup pumps to keep the cooling water going through those reactors. If they had, if they had those, those generators upland above the reactors in bunkers underground with wires underground to the pumps, everything would have been fine. There would have been no explosions. There would have been no meltdown of the core so they really did not do things right. And they also had a very bad protocol for the operation of the, re of, of the situation during an emergency. In the United States, for example, if there's an accident at a nuclear reactor, the, the guy in charge of the reactor phones the president and briefs the president on what has happened and what they are doing about it. In Japan, the head of the reactor phones the president and asks the president what he should do. 
as if the president knows what to do with a nuclear reactor when it's having a problem. So this, this is what caused all those hydrogen explosions, three in, in a row over a period of days, was because the president didn't want them to break the, the, the containment around where the fumes were coming out because some small amount of radiation would escape. That would have prevented those explosions and prevented an even worse damage to the reactor cores because those explosions from hydrogen went right into the core and blew up them again after they'd melted down. So the, the Fukushima was uh, something that should never have happened in the first place. Uh, it did happen and many lessons have been learned from it. Chernobyl was a really also unique situation where Russia at that time still behind the Iron Curtain, not listening or communicating with Western colleagues on, on technology. They took the reactors that they had been making plutonium for nuclear weapons and replicated them all around the former Soviet Union as electricity producers. But these reactors were a fundamentally bad design. It, it's the difference between having a positive void coefficient and a negative void coefficient where everybody just goes to sleep not knowing what the heck we're talking about. So, but that was the deal. They were a, a design that could, under some circumstances, go critical and have a nuclear explosion. The Three Mile Island and Fukushima were meltdowns of the reactor core due to loss of coolant after the reactor had stopped. When you stop a nuclear reactor, the heat from the decay of the fission products has to be cooled for about four days until it goes down. Whereas with Chernobyl, it was actually an, a, a kind of nuclear bomb that happened there. And that just sprayed the radiation all over the place. And that was only once that that happened. After Chernobyl, they took all the other reactors. Well, many of them were actually shut down. But Russia still has 10 of those reactors operating today because they did extensive modification to them so that that accident could never happen again. But it is true that we learn as we go. And in fact, the Chernobyl accident caused the death of 86 people. Greenpeace says 300,000. Apparently they have, do not have names or gravestones or you know, there, there's no actual evidence for that. But there were 86 people, most of whom were firefighters fighting the blaze for 10 days that, that, that continued after the Chernobyl explosion. And the, the fire was continuing to send radiation into the atmosphere that whole time. And those people who were fighting it were up close to the radiation. So many of them died from acute radiation poisoning or radiation sickness. Uh, that, that's just what happened. But there are 440 nuclear reactors operating every day in this world without accidents. And many of them have been operating for more than 40 years. And most reactors will be fine for 60 years operation, even 80. Whereas wind and solar are good for about 20. So they have to be replaced every 20 years or so. Whereas nuclear reactors are more reliable, cost less to operate and last for much longer. So th that's why I support nuclear energy. 
Another reason to support nuclear energy, even though I'm definitely not opposed to fossil fuels on the climate subject, I do not believe that CO2 is causing the, the slight warming that has occurred since the Little Ice Age peaked in about 1700. It's been warming ever since then. There, there were no fossil fuels being used in 1700. As a matter of fact, one of the fastest periods of warming occurred in about 1700, just between 1690, I believe, and 1730. That was the fastest period of warming that's occurred during this whole modern warm period. period. So I don't see any evidence that proves that CO2 is even slightly the cause of any warming in the global climate. But, but I still support nuclear energy because it could replace more fossil fuels than any other technology we have. Nuclear energy could easily replace 50% of the fossil fuels we are using for energy today. And the main way it could do that is by providing all the energy for buildings. Buildings use 40% of all the energy we produce for heating, cooling, hot water, and appliances. All of that could be provided by nuclear, 100%. As a matter of fact, anything that needs electricity that is stationary, that is, doesn't move around like cars, could be supplied by nuclear. And of course, nuclear could provide energy to charge batteries as well, and it would be available at night when cars are being charged, if you want to make all the cars electric, which I don't have any fundamental objection to that, except they cost more and they don't go as far, but they may sort that out eventually with economies of scale. And so there's nothing wrong with electric cars. It's just that they are more expensive and they're not as convenient in, in many ways. But Nuclear could also replace the, the propulsion systems for all large ships. In other words, all the oil tankers and all the cargo ships could be nuclear because the whole Russian icebreaker fleet in the Arctic is nuclear. Six countries have nuclear navies with submarines that go underwater for three months with nuclear warheads on them. If you can do that with nuclear, you can certainly push an oil tanker or a cargo ship across the ocean. No problem at all. So nuclear could replace fossil fuels for a very large percentage of fossil fuel use. And the good thing about that would be that fossil fuels would then last longer. We should actually be conserving fossil fuels for the uses where there's nothing else that can do it, like flying an airplane, for example. You can't use nuclear energy to fly an airplane. You, you just can't. You can't put wires to an airplane. Whereas a huge shovel in a coal mine could have electric wire to it because they only move a short distance around. And they even have those today. Uh, all trains could be electrified because the tracks can be electrified. It's much more difficult for heavy transport like big trucks and big tractors and big, big farm equipment it's much more difficult to try and run them on batteries. So maybe we should keep using fossil fuels for those things. And if we replaced fossil fuels with nuclear energy for the things which are convenient to do, those fossil fuels would last a lot longer 
into the future. So that's the reason to support nuclear, not, not, to, re not to reduce fossil fuels because of climate change. But the irony is, of course, the people who are against fossil fuels are also against nuclear energy. And that makes no sense, absolutely no sense at all. But that's what they think. Okay. Just going on a different tangent because there's something I'm curious because I've seen the video with you with the seal, but like the North Pole, I'm not sure when you were in your travels on the ships and everything, but it's totally protected with military from a load of countries. Do you know why? Sorry, I don't understand the question. Like in the North Pole, you're not able to actually fly towards the, the North Pole. They have all military bases around that nobody's allowed to go by in, towards the North Pole. Do you know why? I didn't know that. Um, I know that lots of pe people can go to the Arctic if they wish. I don't know about the North Pole itself. There's no land there. There's only ice. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm not sure if there's any restriction. I know that explorers and people who are trying to prove that they can walk to the North Pole are allowed to do this. Uh, they're permitted to do it. It's very difficult because the Arctic Ocean near the North Pole is only sea. Uh, Antarctic is different because it's land all around the pole. Two, two completely different situations. The Canadian islands go close to the North Pole, but that's the only ones. Everything else is water up there. So I don't, I don't think there are, uh, there's not many military bases uh, near the North Pole. So I, I'm not sure if, if there is any restriction. Okay. That's what I've been told that, but I haven't been there, so it's impossible to prove it. And just re regarding the story with the seal, because I think you were uh, protecting a seal, yeah? Because I've seen a video with you. Yes, I was sitting on a seal to protect it, a baby seal. Yeah. to protect it from the hunter because we don't we didn't think it was right to club the baby seals while they are still nursing with their mother we wouldn't do that with deer or any land animal we wouldn't kill the young when it was still nursing uh, mammals have a very strong uh, emotional bond at that point in their lives so now they wait until the seals have stopped nursing and then they kill them. I still don't see much of a reason for this particular uh, industrial hunting. Uh, it, it's to get fur, of course. Uh, I would prefer in some ways that they would use farms for this, uh, like they do with mink and many other uh, animal species. I'm, uh, and I, I've, I've never been a supporter of trophy hunting where you go to kill an animal to get some of its parts to hang on your wall type thing um, with wild animals. There's too many people and not enough wild animals. And I, 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 it's just, it is true, though, that some animals can become too abundant and become a, a nuisance, and then maybe it makes sense to have some control over them. And that's what the, the irony is, the Inuit in the Arctic the Canadian Inuit, which have a territory called Nunavut, which is where the, uh, there are no trees, the very far northern and eastern part of Canada. It's a huge area. Baffin Island is part of it. And Baffin Island is one of the biggest islands in the world. 
and there there are polar bears and the polar bears have increased in population so much that they are now becoming a problem for the villages of the native people there they're coming into the villages and even killing people so the Inuit have passed a resolution in their parliament to give people the right to protect themselves from polar bears until now it was illegal to kill a polar bear no matter what it was doing even if it was attacking your children you're not supposed to kill it and now they've changed that so that people have the right to defend themselves their family and their community from polar bears but no one hears about this because everybody still has the myth that polar bears are going extinct when in fact they have increased in population by about four or five times since the treaty was signed by all the polar countries to end the unrestricted hunting of polar bears. This treaty was signed in 1973, but when I speak to audiences, no one has ever heard of this treaty. Educated people have never heard of this treaty. Why? Because the media, the politicians, they never ever tell them about it. They never tell them that there's a treaty to prevent the killing of polar bears. So people think that, I don't know what people think. Well, they're told that the polar bears are going extinct because the ice is melting. And this is totally untrue. The, the Arctic is still completely covered in ice all winter. It melts some in the summer, which is good because then the sun can shine on the Arctic Ocean and produce plankton, which makes the whole food chain for the sea and makes seals for polar bears to eat in the winter, which is when they, when they hunt for polar bears. So the story of th that polar bear story is all in my book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes. And if people read my book, they will see 11 chapters, each one on a different subject of fake catastrophes that are being, people are being told is an environmental nightmare and doom is coming and all these things. They're all false all 11 of these key issues that I put forward. Now they're saying that all the forest fires are caused by climate change. No, they're not. They, they are just not caused by climate change. They are caused by trees for one thing. That's why there are forest fires because there's trees which are flammable. And forest fires have been happening forever from lightning. That's what traditionally caused them. But today you have forest fires which are caused by cigarettes being thrown out of a car window, by campfires being left burning, by arsonists, there's a lot of arson, and by power lines, which are not being cleared properly from trees that could fall on them and cause a forest fire. That's what happened in California with the Paradise Fire, which killed, I think, 90 people. And then the other problem is the management of the forest is not being done properly to prevent these massive wildfires. They are not thinning the trees. They are not removing the dead wood. They, they are building houses right in the middle of needle tree forests, which are pitchy and catch on fire like a candle when they burn. And they, they kill, kill people when they could be doing a proper job of it. You shouldn't build villages in the, you know, with a forest like right up next to it. You have to change the landscape so that you don't end up with forest fires coming into a village. And we've had lots of examples of that, but people keep blaming climate change for it instead of recognizing that it's a problem of the management of the forest. 
Excellent. Listen, thank you very much, Patrick. I'll pass you on to Steve. Thanks, Roy. Thanks, Roy. Hi, Steve. Hi, Patrick. Wow, it's just an incredible journey you've been on. And I mean, I honor everything you've done. And I'm not the kind of guy to go, you know, jump on a boat and, you know, risk my life. So I, it's just, it must have been an incredible experience back then to do what you've done. And you saved, you know, hydrogen bombs from going off. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things I could jump around on. But because you wrote this book, The Fake Invisible Catastrophes, I mean, you know, I'm a bit of I'm a bit cynical because I've been down rabbit holes and I, I don't the truth is very hard to discern. Uh, but I would I would say it looks like global warming is a psyop to blame humanity for the Earth's woes so that certain people can, you know, uh, you know, have us stop eating things we need like meat and um, and things from the Earth and 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 usher in what some would call the new world order or the great reset or or you know whatever the world economic forum klaus schwab is talking about whether it's related or not um in your fake invisible catastrophes what do you is one of them the the sickness of this virus that's going around is do you consider this real or or do you consider this something that is uh you being used to control humanity well, I, there's no reason why it can't be both. Uh, it certainly is real. I, I have actually experienced it myself. I caught COVID because I went on a business trip. And I'm t telling you, you don't want to get it. Uh, it's, a, it's a very nasty disease. It has all kinds of effects that I've never experienced before. Uh, and I was hospitalized for six days and then had to be quarantined. And the recovery period is quite long. It affected my lungs, which is where the virus mainly attacks you. But it, it's not just your lungs. It's uh, much of the rest of your body is affected by it. And I'm still recovering, although I'm in pretty good shape now. I have most of my breath back. But you don't want to get it. And... Yet at the same time, it is being used. I mean, we have to remember the only reason this thing happened was because people were manipulating these viruses to make them more infectious to human beings. Yes. Now, why were they doing that? Why was the United States supporting it with money? Fauci is still denying this, but well, he's denying it now on the basis that the money was not for uh, gain of function research. So he's using this technical term to try to get around being accused of supporting the gain of function research, which is what he was doing. So he's now being uh, taken before uh, a judge, I believe, to uh, speak about this. I, he's I think the judge will be his uncle and he probably nothing will happen. But anyway... Yeah, well, we all know this 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 syndrome that's happening. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it started at UNC Chapel Hill. You know, Ralph Barrick, and it, it's it's even in the NIH website. I have it right there. You can go where it said the NIH yeah. says that they they donated, they funded Duke University, Wuhan. They list everyone they funded for gain of yeah. function. It's right there in the website. So I mean, there's no yeah. there's no conspiracy. Uh, so, no, it's it's clearly so, right there, and it's clear that the only thing that isn't clear is what the motivation for doing this was. Was it a military uh, 
program or what, what else? I, I just don't understand why you would want to make a virus more infectious to humans on purpose. And they were mm -hmm. definitely doing that. The whole thing about genetically modified mice that mimic human tissue being used to see if it would infect more effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, I, but the reason I, I do mention COVID in my epilogue just briefly as another mm -hmm. example mm -hmm. of what I'm talking, but in the book, I stick to environmental issues. Uh, okay. Because if, if I was to go off onto all the other subjects, uh, well, although, I mean, I, COVID isn't fake. That's why it's not in my book. Mm, but it okay. is an example well, of using an issue to gain control through fear. So it has that in common with the fake invisible catastrophes and threats of doom theme. But I'm talking about things which aren't a threat, like mm. global warming is not a threat. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's a great benefit to have a little bit of global warming, because if you can see behind me in my photograph there, my backdrop, the mount, the top of the mountain is covered in ice. Now, people have this affinity for glaciers, like as if they're some kind of religious icon, as if they're alive, as if they have spirits or something, when in fact they are preventing a forest from growing there because it's too cold for the forest mm. and it's covered with ice so the tree can't get its yeah. roots in. So basically yeah. what the ice is doing, because we're in an ice age, that's why that glacier is there is because we're in an ice age. Okay. And the, it's called the Pleistocene ice age. It's 2.6 million years old is where they demarcate where the ice age started. And we're actually at the tail end of a 50 million year cooling period on this earth. And nobody talks about that. They, they act as though 1850 was when life began or the world began. Whereas yeah. there was quite a bit of history before that, like over 3 billion years worth of it. And we have pretty good understanding of many of the factors that were occurring during those periods, especially back about half a billion years, 500 million. See, you can drill sediment cores in the bottom of the sea where sediment has been settling out from the life in the sea for hundreds of millions of years. That's where the oil and gas were, were created from the, the bodies of creatures that sank to the bottom of the sea when they died. And that's that's where it's from life cold so would you forest. would you say that the earth is not destroyed not in danger you know uh that you know co2 levels are actually quite low uh that global warming is not happening i mean is w w what's your just general view on the state of of the earth as a planet uh, as a planet the earth is at the end of if it goes the same way as most of the other interglacial periods have been, is coming towards the end of this glacial interglacial period. You see, people think that when the last glacial maximum ended, that that was the end of the ice age. But there have been at least 40 glacial advances in the ice age. And each one of them has been followed by an interglacial period where it warmed somewhat, warmed enough so that Canada wasn't covered in a sheet of ice. 
during the last glaciation, the most recent glaciation. That's why I don't use last, because if you say the last glaciation, it, it can also be interpreted as that's the end of glaciation. But we have absolutely no reason to believe that there won't be another glacial maximum following this interglacial period, because it's happened with some precision more than 40 times since the Ice Age came on two and a half million years ago. 2.6, they say. Wow. But that's an arbitrary point where they say we're gone from this age to this age. It's a continuum. So is it, can, um, just, can you unilaterally say that, you know, CO2 levels are actually quite low and, and we, we the, the planet could stand more CO2, thus combustion engines are not a threat to, um, you know, the destruction of the planet? Absolutely. And, Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, okay. The, the earth is warming now. It has been for 300 years. This is the modern warm period, which is similar to the Roman warm period and the medieval warm period. These, this is approximately a 1000 year cycle for which we have no explanation. We, do, we, we know the cycle, the Milankovitch cycle that is governing the timing of the gl major glaciations and interglacial periods that uh, the, and, and that's too deep to go into here, okay. but it's in my book, the, an explanation of the Milankovitch cycles, which are caused by, mainly caused by the gravity of Jupiter and its cycles that, that are every 100,000 years right now. And that's, that's how long these periods are apart from each other of major glaciations. So we're quite sure that the major glaciation frequency is caused by these cycles due to Jupiter's gravity. And nobody's being told about this. I mean, it's been known for some time okay. and people should be told about it, but they're yeah. not. They're being, being told that, the, that, that we're going into a period of, of where the earth will be too hot for life because of mm. carbon dioxide. When mm. in fact, carbon dioxide, as you mentioned, is lower now than it has been in most of the history of life on Earth. Mm. It, it started out half a billion years ago, it was 6,000 ppm, and life flourished during that period. This is when modern life began, multicellular multi life mm. began then. And it, up until then, there had only been single-celled life in the sea. Life had not even come on the land half a billion years ago. It didn't come on the land until 420 million years ago. And then, yeah. and that's when modern life actually began. Mm. But life itself began over 3 billion years ago in the ocean as little, yeah. tiny little well, single cell yeah, I mean, organisms. It's clearly being used to blame humanity to, there's a bigger agenda to, you know, stop having meat and, take us off the earth and, and, and disenfranchise us from everything that's familiar and everything that gives joy in life. So um, precisely it's, yeah. it's the demonization of the human species uh, in yep. order to make everybody think that they are fundamentally bad. That yeah. They are bad, bad people and they should be punished for this. Yes. That's, so that's, I mean, that's the whole deal. And because a lot of people, for some reason, a lot of people, Chris, but the, 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 and the, the thing with the GMOs that I've read, and that I've heard people that have studied it extensively is that there, you know, glyphosate or round, which is Roundup, is a very apparently very destructive chemical for the human body. 
And they're apparently the GMO seeds have glyphosate Roundup in the seed. And I don't know. I, both I guess of that those, means... both of those are lies. Okay. All right. That's. I'm not saying that's yeah. a fact. I just that's that was a theory I heard. So um, glyphosate you know, you is found on that. Glyphosate yep. is not put on seeds. It is Ford's... sprayed. It is sprayed on the the emerging crop to kill weeds and not the crop because the crop is Roundup ready as it's called, which means it has been genetically modified to be resistant to glyphosate. Whereas other plants are not resistant to glyphosate okay. and th therefore you can control weeds without sending thousands of people out to pick them out by hand. Okay. And it also has meant that you can have no-till or zero-till agriculture, which is a huge advantage to soil uh, being conserved. But the issue of toxicity, I mean, one of the biggest hits on me was when I said you could drink a glass of glyphosate and it would not harm you, and this is a fact. In terms of human toxicity, you see, glyphosate only acts on plants because of a certain pathway in plants that we don't have. It acts on plants because they have a different pa chemical pathway and that's where it acts. So we don't have that pathway. So in terms of human toxicity, it's very well understood. It's been tested over and over again that in terms of human toxicity, glyphosate is less toxic than vinegar and table salt. Well, Most people right, well, don't realize table salt is actually quite toxic and it's also an essential nutrient. So this seems like a contradiction, but it's not because at low levels, table salt is an essential nutrient. If we don't take table salt, we die. It's in many of our foods naturally, but we also use it both to get table salt and to get iodine because salt is being used as a vector for putting iodine in our bodies, which we also yes. need for yeah. our thyroid. And so imagine it's, it's less toxic than vinegar. So it's right. not very well, I'll toxic. do my research. I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm indoctrinated into the, that it's yeah. bad. So, you know, you can but, find yeah. all kinds of tables that show this. There's yeah. IR. Well, gonna, the I'll only... pass you to Chris because Chris, Chris is, um, you know, he's a he's a tough guy. So he's going right. to he'll he'll uh, he'll turn your world upside down. I'm waiting for it. I'll keep it Hi, simple Chris. for you. How are you doing, Patrick? You good? I'm do I'm doing well, thanks. I love your accent. Perfect. I, I, my family, my family on my father's side is from Ireland, but it was during the second wave of the potato famine that my great, great, great grandmother, a widow with eight children, got in a boat and came to Canada. Wow, you're going way back. Yep. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about the, the polar bears. And yes. you were saying, obviously, the, the treaty and a lot of people, obviously, still to this day will be critics. I don't believe the polar bears are getting less and less. But you get, how do you, from your standing position of 50 years in the industry of all this as well, not I don't want to use the word, how do you convert somebody? But how do you kind of put the information there, plant that seed and say, hey, what you're saying is completely false. There are polar bears growing more and more by the numbers, not getting less and less, because the normal theory you hear from people is that 
because of the, the ice obviously is breaking up and then they're, they're actually getting further apart from each other so the pole rays can't get to the actual ice ledge every time to have a rest for a bit and go again. That's the normal theory I hear thrown around the place. How do you kind of say to these people then, well, look, go to X, Y, and Z, and this will prove, because everybody goes, well, where is it? Where's the information? Because we go to government websites, we go to different places and say, no, no, it's not there, even though I know the government hide a lot of stuff. All you have to do is look at the satellite photographs of the Arctic, looking down from the North to the North Pole and seeing the whole Northern part of the Earth uh, to see the extent of the ice in the winter and the summer. In the winter, the entire Arctic Ocean is frozen over, still today, every year. And in the summer, there has been a retreat of the ice so that it's only covering about half of the Arctic Ocean, which is a good thing and maybe almost certainly is one of the factors that has allowed the polar bear population to grow so rapidly because if the sea is covered in ice, especially in the summer, the sunlight can't get to the surface to promote the growth of plankton, which are plants, Phyto, phytoplankton is their full name. They are the basis of the food chain. That's where the photosynthesis occurs in the ocean. And the land in the Arctic, the Canadian islands primarily, does not have that much growing on it. There's a few berry bushes, but in the summer, there's not much food for the polar bears but they manage to forage on the land. They come off the ice in the summer, even though there is a lot of ice there, but there's no seals to hunt in the summer because they're not breeding them. Seals give birth, I guess, as the, as the winter comes on at the end of the summer. And that's when the polar bears start going out on the ice to hunt them, is, it, is, is like at the end of the summer. And they stay there all winter and the ice just floats freezes over the whole Arctic. So the idea that the Arctic ice is disappearing is a lie in itself. But the fact that there is less ice in the summer now means the sunlight can reach the sea surface and promote the growth of plankton, which is then eaten by shrimp, which is then eaten by fish, which is then eaten by seals, which then provides the food for the polar bears. And if you look at pictures of polar bears today, they are all fat and happy. They are not separated by little wee ice flows. That The ice cover is continuous in the winter and the summer. But now, and, and actually this last year, the ice came, came further in the, in the summer, was more extensive in the summer than it has been in some previous years. So we don't know if this reduction in ice is temporary or will continue. But... My main point about polar bears, which is kind of ironic, is if it wasn't for climate change, there wouldn't be any polar bears. None, right? They wouldn't have existed in the first place. Because the only reason they exist is because coming out of the warmer periods of the past, when there was no ice on the North Pole, that was like 200 million years when there was no ice on the North Pole. So as this present ice age came on, which is the first ice age in 250 million years. If you look up the name Karoo, K-A-R-O-O, the Karoo ice age, which was what from 350 to 250 million years ago, in other words, a 100 million year ice age ended 250 million years ago 
and the earth went into a warming trend, which continued until this ice age came on 2.5 million years ago. So there was nearly 250 million years where there was no ice on the North Pole or the South Pole. So when the ice came back and started covering the North Pole, the European brown bear, which in North America we call the grizzly bear, the, grizz the, the European brown bear migrated with humans across the Bering Land Bridge 15,000 years ago and came to, to North America like the reindeer did, we call them caribou, like the timber wolf did, and like humans did. Uh, so we have the European brown bear here now, only we call it the grizzly bear, it's the same species. But before that happened, probably about, oh, half a million years ago or so, as this ice continued year after year, some members of the European brown bear went north to hunt for seals on the ice, and they turned into polar bears. Even today, because it's such a short period since they diverged into two separate subspecies, basically, polar bears and European brown bears can still breed and produce viable offspring. In other words, they are, they are, that's the definition of a species, basically. If they can still breed and produce a viable offspring that itself can breed, that is fecund, in other words. And so the European brown bear and the polar bear are still very close genetically, but the polar bear, sorry, the polar bear and the European brown bear are very close genetically, but the polar bear has become white in its fur, which is good for camouflage in the ice, and has also developed a, a digestive system that is more for, for carnivorous diet, because the European brown bear eats a lot of berries and stuff because it's living in the north of Russia mainly, and but the polar bear doesn't have a lot of berries around. It's mostly, mostly its diet that keeps it alive is seals. So it was because of the climate change coming into the ice age that the polar bear even exists. And that's why polar bears evolved because of climate change and wouldn't be here otherwise. Um. Touching there on what Steve mentioned as well about the PSYOP and against humanity and, you know, talking about the New World Order and going down that kind of road or that path itself. I mean, there's plenty of books before, before Agenda 21, our first global revolution, the quiet wars. There's loads yeah. of ones going back into the technocracy, moving back even into the 40s. And there's lots of different chapters and pages where they actually do talk about, you know, we've we've thought of um, earthquakes. We've thought of so many things across the world. And we thought, hey, do you know what actually might work is? against humanity basically and there's lots of talk about that and i believe that's the real trueness of where this is coming from that there is no i mean many of the reasons they had to change from global warm to climate change because there was none of this significant global warm that they were actually talking about and if you go back before the 90s say into the 80s even you had likes of obviously al gore and you had obama and you had lots of those people who had already set up stuff like trading on the banks and trading on the stock uh, stock exchange and wall street and all these places and they had massive massive huge amounts of money already set up to be made that was already there beforehand. I mean, I could go down a real massive rabbit hole of all this, but from your end, the thing's been 50 years on the scene itself. Where have you found in a kind of dot connecting scenario the big movers and shakers behind all this if you're going down that route? Well, for one thing, they're mainly politicos rather than scientists. Uh, the scientists that are providing the 
food for this movement are not really in charge of anything. They are relying on bureaucrats who are guided by politicians uh, as to who to give the money to. Virtually all the research money is from taxpayers' money. So it's the politicians who are deciding who to fund. And they are deciding to fund people who support the human destroying the earth narrative. And it wasn't long ago that virtually all the science journals were taken over by journalists rather than scientists. And so you have a very strong political uh, bias towards the doom and gloom stuff. It's very hard to get a paper published which is positive about the future of the planet. And so the, the four, well, there's five actually, the four main actors in this are first, first and not in any particular order, the activists who are making a fortune on these scare stories, the media who are making a fortune on these scare stories, the politicians who are promising to save your children and your grandchildren from certain death, from climate change, who are making a lot of votes, getting a lot of votes on this, the, the crony capitalists who are sucking tons of money out of the government, in especially the wind and solar. W wind and solar just themselves are far more than any other uh, financial aspect of this thing. The scientists are cheap compared to the wind and solar. And, and, and then there are the scientists who are bought and paid for by the politicians and the bureaucrats. So it's, um, I don't know, it's a circle jerk. That's one nice way of putting it. They're all feeding into each other. And it's a cabal. It's the new world order. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the nature of the new world order, where you have all of these five very powerful entities collaborating with each other on the doom and gloom scenario. And it's very much like throwing virgins into a volcano. As it's, it's the same sort of thing. If you start with the fact that humans are evil and are destroying the planet, mm. and you go from there, what should we do about this? Oh, we should make sure that half of them die fairly quickly. And that would happen if you banished fossil fuels tomorrow. I mean, the people who are living on the 30th floor of a condominium in one of the 500 cities with over a million people in it on the earth, they, they just don't even know where their food is coming from. It, it comes in at night in trucks when they're sleeping. They get up in the morning and the shelves are nicely stocked with all of the things they love. And the fact is, if you, you ended fossil fuels, imagine what that would do to agriculture, which is totally dependent on fossil fuels. That's why less than 5% of the population is engaged in growing food. Whereas when growing food was a purely manual 
operation. You can see it in Mali today and Bangladesh to some extent. It takes 75% of the people to grow the food. And the head guy in his castle with his entourage is a very minority of the people in the medieval model, for example. So it was mechanization of agriculture that changed the whole game. And now, not more than 95% of the people can do something else, like make things in factories and et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, that's the, of course, that's the upside of mechanization is it freed up so many people from toil to work in offices with computers and make us so rich that we don't even understand how lucky we are. Uh, that happened, but the downside of mechanization is what I'm focusing on these days. I, for a long time, I've tried to explain to people that modern technology has been a good thing. We live twice as long as we used to, and, and all those things that has been brought to us by mechanization. The downside of mechanization is now the vast majority of people leave, live in urban environments and many of them have no clue about what's going on outside those environments. And they are easily convinced by the activists and the politicians that it's the people out in the country who are drilling and cutting and uh, chopping and digging and all the things they do out there, that they are the destroyers of the earth. And when in fact, what time have we got here? I'm just looking to see because I have a noon thing. We're going to go. We're just fine. 15 minutes more. Um, the people in the country are the are the true enemies of the earth. They are the ones who are destroying the earth. And the people in the city fail to realize that the only reason those people are doing what they're doing is so the people in the city can have the food, energy, and materials that they need to be alive. That's why they're alive. You can't grow enough food on your balcony in the city to mm. supply your needs. And if you don't have a balcony, you're really out of luck. So there's no way that all these billions of people now who live in cities could ever survive if it wasn't for the people in the country who are still working hard outdoors in the weather to grow the food and dig the minerals and catch the fish and cut the trees. That's the only reason those people are able to stay alive in the city. And they don't respect that. And they're not being encouraged to do so because they're being lied to by the people who want to keep them in control, in their control. And Greenpeace, for example, when we started, we were completely open. Anybody could come into our office. We were in public all the time. I mean, how many people know who the president of Greenpeace is now and who the directors are? Nobody. They're all behind closed doors. They're all hanging out with the people at Davos in the World Economic Forum, and they're all talking globalism, which, as far as I can see, means being controlled by bureaucrats from Beijing. I can't see any other model occurring besides that one. It certainly wouldn't be democratic. You can't make a democratic world government. I mean, and besides which the Chinese would have 
a fair majority of the votes. I'd love to just go on for go more questions. I do have plenty of other questions in, in lots of areas that go down them rabbit holes, but I know I said time is not on our side at the minute. So, and I want to let Hart Mudd in as well. So, um, yeah, thanks for Patrick for that. You're very welcome, Chris. Wow, Patrick, uh, this is a very, it's like a mosaic what we are talking about here. It's, I really enjoy this conversation with you. Thank and, you, Hartman. Yes, it's a big picture. And um, I want to give a comment on also concerning the political stuff and the bureaucratic people. We had here in Germany a very controversial politician who was with the name Franz Josef Strauss. He was in the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s. He also worked on the German law after for the Federal, uh, for the Federal Republic of Germany. And he's made a very interesting comment in 1986. He said, the Green Party is a melon party. Outside green, inside red. And this, he saw it already in 1986. Yeah. Um, what I want to talk uh, about uh, with you, what I want to talk about with you is about the atomic plants, because this is a subject which I like. <laughs> um, the, the problem with the atomic plants is not the atomic plant itself, it is the storage. Um, because the storage is quite expensive and uh, because of the long radiation, uh, we are, the most people fear that it will poison our, um, our environment. Now I know that um, there is also a developing uh, or an evolution in this uh, technology, but it's hidden. No one is talking about that. So, for example, that the so that the uranium itself um, uh, gets smaller by by using it, and that um, and that uh, the radiation is can be quite low. Can you talk about that a little bit? Do you know anything about that about the technology uh, right I, now? I, I know way too much about that, Hartmut. For uh, six years, I was co-chair of the Clean and Safe Energy Coalition financed by the U.S. Nuclear Energy Institute in Washington, uh, where we went to meet leaders of all levels of uh, civic and state and federal level. Many members, I, I must have spoken to 120 members of Congress during that period about the subject. So I already knew quite a lot about nuclear energy and nuclear radiation from the campaigns against nuclear war and that sort of thing. I've always been greatly interested in it. Uh, first off, the most important thing is that the nuclear waste is not going to be wasted because over 90% of the energy is still there in that used nuclear fuel, as we would like to call it. It's been used once but most of the energy is still there. Uh, let me quickly say, there is only one element in the world that can make nuclear energy for the first time. That is uranium-235. Uranium-235 is only 0.7% of natural uranium. The other 99.3% is uranium-238. It cannot make a nuclear reaction by itself. Then there is thorium. People say we should have thorium reactors. Thorium cannot be made into a reactor. It is not fissile. And this is the distinction between fissile and fertile. The 
Uranium-235 is the only fissile isotope on the planet. But uranium-238 and thorium can be converted into a fissile isotope in a nuclear reactor. So that when you burn uranium-235 in a traditional reactor, it is about 3 or 4% because you have increased it by enrichment from 0.7 to 3 or 4% in order to make it efficient and in order to make it work. So that 3 or 4% of uranium-235 runs that nuclear reactor for some years. And while it's doing so, the neutron flux in the reactor, the neutrons are what make the energy, converts some of the uranium-238 into plutonium-239, which is a fissile isotope, does not exist on the Earth naturally. So now we have made a new form of fuel for nuclear reaction. And that is what, if you look up the Russian reactor, BN-800 or BN-1200, which is being built now, but BN-800 is operating and it is a fast neutron reactor using plutonium-239 as a fuel. So all of the waste, of the nuclear waste as it's called, still has over 90% of its energy available in it. And thorium, in a, if you put thorium in with a fissile isotope in a reactor, it is converted to uranium-233, which is also not present on the Earth anywhere because it had too short a half-life to last this time if it was there in the first place. Uranium-233 is also a fissile isotope. So when they say a thorium reactor, they actually mean a uranium-233 reactor. There's, there's uh, no other way to do it. So we actually have a nuclear fuel supply that is hundreds, actually thousands of times greater than just the uranium-238. So the, the, you could talk about this for a long time, but I, I won't. I'll just leave you with that fact that the used nuclear fuel is at incredibly valuable asset and all over the world what's called breeder reactors fast neutron reactors have been stopped for political reasons not for energy reasons or scientific reasons the opposition to these so-called breeder reactors because they're called that because they breed new fuel by transmuting which is the scientific word for converting a non-fissile isotope into a fissile isotope and that can be done on a massive scale worldwide so we could gear up and have 10 or 100 times as many nuclear reactors as we have today and still have ample fuel for thousands of years that's why nuclear is the fuel of the future and many people understand what i do about that and the the, the fear campaign against, I mean, the used nuclear fuel is not just being thrown in the river. It, it's being put into extremely uh, solid, concrete, reinforced casements. It should actually be put in a, in a building with a roof over it, just because it's going to, if you wait 300 years, all of the decay products have 
gone from their half-lives being very short, and you have a much easier thing to work with in terms of getting the fuel out of there. Um, okay, I'll stop there because that's this is a discussion that could go for about a week. But I understand. But uh, so the storage itself, you think uh, it's it's quite safe, and the transport itself, because the transport is so expensive. Do you think? Uh, I think uh, because well, the reason it's expensive is because they go to ridiculous ends. It it it's it shouldn't be any more expensive than transmitting any other uh, dangerous chemical. Right, we transmit dangerous materials all the time on railroads and in trucks. So it's, it 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 should, of course, have escorts and safety systems around it when it's transported. But it's, by the time it gets transported, it's usually in a completely solid uh, container that I don't know would have to be dropped from three thousand feet from an airplane to break. So it's it's not as if there's that much risk. And so these rules have been made for the very purpose of making it more expensive rather than making it much safer because it's, the rules are being made by people who are fundamentally against nuclear energy and probably don't even know that you can't make a reactor based on thorium itself. You know, because you hear this all the time and people who are saying we should have thorium reactors are actually saying that we should put some thorium in a uranium reactor in order to turn it into uranium-233. That, that's the only way you can use thorium to make a nuclear reactor. No other way. So they're, they're just leaving out a whole bunch of information that is essential to actually understand what you would be doing. The Russians are doing it. China is, is also going to go forward with this technology because it multiplies the fuel by nearly a thousand times in the end. It's like in the Bible, there's this parable of the loaves and fishes where Jesus takes one fish and five loaves of bread. Is that it? I think it is. I, get, I think I got my numbers right. There's one and five. There's I know three, that. Three breads, but I don't know. It doesn't matter. Whatever. Yeah. How many? Just a very small amount and, and feeds a multitude with this right? And this is a very good uh, parable for nuclear fuel in that we can take the available nuclear fuel that has been given to us by nature of this uranium-235, which is only 0.7% of uranium, and we can turn all the other 99.3% into fuel by using the uranium-235 to do so in cycle after cycle after cycle. And then we can take all the thorium, which is at least four to five times as abundant as uranium, and turn all of it into fuel. This can be done, and the Russians are doing it. Uh, there's been, these reactors have been built in the United States, in Japan, in France. In France, it was called Phoenix, but the politicians destroyed it. And I don't know what the politics were behind it. Perhaps the fossil fuel industry was involved. Uh, I, I have no idea what the mixture of politics was in each of these locations to shut these things down. The one in the United States was working perfectly well. And uh, uh, Clinton shut it down in the early 90s. So the opposition to nuclear energy is one of the most irrational 
political positions in the world today. But we've got lots of fossil fuels, so let's just burn them. You know, that um, seems to be the attitude. For me, it's very, well, so, um, so you mean that it is a very efficient, very efficient uh, material to use uranium and to work with it like that, and that the um, radiation at the end is not such a high danger at the radiation, end. Radiation is a high danger. Mm. It's just that you, you, you have to protect yourself from it. And that mm. is easy enough to do by having shielding. The people who work in nuclear reactors are not having any problem with disease or dying young. They are not receiving enough energy, enough, enough, enough radiation to be of harm. And one, there's this, many of the rules about radiation are based on what's called a linear no threshold model or hypothesis, where they say any amount of radiation is dangerous and any more is more dangerous. Where this, this is say, like saying that radiation is totally different than everything else because there is nothing which is following that rule. Virtually every substance is not dangerous at low levels. For example, table salt is a good example. Table salt is an essential nutrient at a low level. And then there's another level, if you go up and up and up, it's still good for you, but it's not, you don't need that much. And pretty soon it becomes toxic to where if you eat five tablespoons of table salt at once, just this much in a glass, you will die. Because nice. it, so that's what most things are, is they are harmless at low levels, even beneficial, like, like salt. And then it's only when you get to higher levels. In, in, the, in toxicology, the first rule is, the first principle is, the poison is in the dose. In other words, in how much of it you ingest. A toxic thing is fine if it isn't in your body, if it's over there somewhere. It isn't toxic if it isn't in you. Radiation is different in that it, external exposure to radiation can be dangerous. But the, the point is that there's, there's all these thousands of people working in the nuclear plants every day, and it's not harming them because they've designed the nuclear plant so it won't. And this is another question what I want to talk about with you. It's uh, the last one. Um, uh, the also Fukushima, Fukushima is a power plant which is which was very secure. The the the, the doors they have they, uh, to the to the plutonium they are more than three meters big, thick. And um, did plutonium? you? I don't know whether it's plutonium. Uh, the the to the to the radiation sticks. Uh, the doors, they are very thick and uh, more, I think, than three meters. My question is, do you, d did you read the, uh, the report of Jim Stone about his idea concerning what has, happening, what has happened in Fukushima? That he thinks right. that, this was, that this was an atomic bomb of the Magna BSB company from Israel because the camera of this company looks very similar to a specific atomic bomb and that this must be an explosion from inside and that the um that uh, the overheating of um of the reactor would not have the the 
the possibility to put, to express such a high pressure so that the uh, reactor can explode. And for this reason, he was of the opinion, he made a report in 2012, where he showed that the Magna BSP company in Israel made cameras which looked similar to an atomic bomb with a specific small warhead. And sounds, um, sounds like a conspiracy theory to me. It is um, a conspiracy theory, but my question is... The, the, the thing is, the, the reactors didn't blow up. The reactors, they, melt, they melted down. It was the hydrogen that blew up that came out of the reactors as a result of the heating causing the zirconium cladding, which is around the... to catalyze the separation of water into oxygen and hydrogen. The hydrogen mm -hmm. went up into the towers that were built just to keep the rain off the reactor, basically. They weren't meant to keep radiation out. Mm -hmm. in. And those towers could easily, they could have just broken the windows. The, the, those towers had glass windows in them. But as soon as hydrogen gets to 8%, the slightest spark will cause a massive explosion. And that's what happened one after another. Even after the first one, they didn't have the brains to let the hydrogen out mm -hmm. because the president said no, because some small amount of radiation would come out too. That's what happened at Three Mile Island. They let it out before it exploded. If they mm -hmm. hadn't done so, Three Mile Island would have been a massive explosion. Whereas, oh, in, and, then, and Three Mile Island happened before Fukushima. They all knew about this and they let it happen. And that caused even more damage to the reactors because the explosion goes down into the reactor as well because it follows the hydrogen down there. That's where the hydrogen was coming from. So that explosion rocked those internals again. Even you know, the, the meltdown itself was not an explosion. The meltdown is just the fuel melting and forming a pool. Mm -hmm. But it's then able to release radiation and hydrogen, and the hydrogen is what exploded, not the nuclear reactor. But the, the hydrogen can uh, ha, has such an impact that it can explode walls which are three meter thick, which is, is it's uh, well, it's a twice of us. It's, 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 Fukushima didn't have any walls three meters thick. No, okay. No, it's a it's the 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 General Electric stuff, not the Westinghouse reactor. The Westinghouse reactor has a huge concrete dome over the whole reactor. Okay. In the G in the GE reactor, they have a different design. You can look at this up, uh, the difference between the GE and the Westinghouse reactor design. The Westinghouse design is the most successful one. Uh, and and But at, at Fukushima, they had the General Electric design, which mm -hmm. does not have that same huge containment. And so what it all that was, was a structure of steel and glass. That, uh, and, and, and that it, 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 that wasn't the reactor containment. That was really just to keep the water out, keep the rain off it. Okay. No, thank you. This was really, thank you so much. It was really amazing for concerning. You're, you're very, very, very welcome. Where are we now in the time here? Well, thank you so much, everyone. And thank you, Patrick. Thank oh, you, Dr. Good. Moore, for being with us. Uh, it's, it's, it was uh, so engaging and it's just such a big topic. And so we hope we could have you again in the near future. And thank you for everything that you do. 
And to all our audience, thank you. If, is there anything more that you want to make an announcement, Dr. Patrick Moore, other than your book? Well, thank you so much, Grace, for having me on with people who are interested in this subject and have many questions to ask. I hope I've answered them clearly and successfully. Um, I, I, yes, I would just say, please go to Amazon, whichever country you are in, and you will find fake invisible catastrophes and threats of doom. It is only 200 pages. It's quite a short book, but it has 11 chapters proving that these uh, scare stories today, I call it the unified theory of scare stories because they are all about things which you cannot verify with your own eyes. You can't go to the North Pole and count the polar bears. You can't go to the Great Barrier Reef and swim over the entire thing, which is about the size of California. You, you can't see this carbon dioxide and what it is doing. You can't see the radiation. So you need to depend on people who are telling the truth. And unfortunately, we're in an age where so many people are supporting this idea that humans are bad and that we are causing the end of the earth, which is totally untrue. These stories have gone on for thousands of years where people have predicted the end of the world, the apocalypse, the destruction of the planet and all these things. They have never come true, ever. They're batting zero on this destruction of the earth theory. And I would say this one is the same. It is made up, it is phony, it is not true. And you should read my book to see if you can be convinced otherwise, because it's a better thing to be happy about the world. Of course, there are things wrong. Of course, there are bad people, but by far the most people are good and are looking after their families and their communities and their world as best as they know how. But if you tell everybody that the world is going to come to an end and humans are evil, there's not much hope. And hope is what makes you go forward with ideas and actions to do good for the world. So think about this, please, everyone, and read my book. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Grace, I hope to see you again soon. Thank I you. Enjoy, I enjoy your style of, of presentation, and this was really fun today. Thank Thanks you so much. See you soon.